Um, well, as always, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word. Uh, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. Uh, if you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, we're also going to have it on the screen behind me, and this has been our anchoring text uh, throughout this entire series on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and what we've been doing each week is when we get to verses 22 to 25, we're going to read that together uh, in one voice to get some congregation uh, participation here. So Galatians 5, 16 to 25, this is the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And let's read this together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Uh, you probably don't know this uh, unless you're a pastor or a theologian, but uh, this past Tuesday we lost a giant in the Christian faith, a uh, widely influential New Testament scholar named Gordon Fee, uh, who has had a huge impact uh, on my own understanding of Scripture and my own journey of faith. And he did an interview with Christianity Today many years ago, and something he said in that interview always stuck out to me. He said, if you had asked the Apostle Paul to define what a Christian is, he would not have said a Christian is a person who believes X and Y doctrines about Christ, but a Christian is a person who walks in the Spirit, who knows Christ, who knows Him. Which begs the question for all of us, if someone were to pose that question to you, what makes you a Christian, how would you answer? I think some of us might describe a list of beliefs. I'm a Christian because I believe Jesus is the Son of God, I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose again uh, from the grave. Um, not so different than the kind of answer we would give if we were describing what we believe about any historical figure. I think some of us might list uh, some behaviors. I'm a Christian because I go to church every Sunday, because I hang out with Christian people, because I pray and read the Bible on occasion. Um, but think about if, if you asked a husband, what makes you a husband? And imagine if that husband answered with a list of behaviors. I'm, I do husbandy things. I mow the lawn. I take out the trash. I plan a date night on occasion. I don't know if any wife would accept that as an answer. How many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, if posed that question, what makes you a Christian, could honestly say, what makes me a Christian is that I know Christ. I know him intimately 
and I love him more than anything else in the world. And really, that's been the heart of our entire focus this year uh, on discovering as a church what it means to live a spirit-filled life where we move from just knowing about God to knowing Christ, to abiding in Christ and allowing Christ to saturate our entire lives, to allowing who Christ is to saturate us and transform us from the inside out. And these past few weeks, we've been talking specifically about what the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. This list of nine attributes or qualities that get deposited supernaturally in the heart of every believer uh, to all who profess their faith in Christ and that the Spirit produces in us as we keep in step with Him. But the problem, according to Paul, is that, there's a, that there, you have this new operating system that gets deposited in us by grace, but the problem is that there's this old operating system, what he refers to as the flesh, that's still kicking inside of us, that's doing everything he can to, to, to completely like, fight against this new operating system, where the old operating system... We know where the new operating system of the spirit is constantly pulling us toward love, the old operating system is constantly pulling us toward selfishness. Where the spirit is constantly moving us toward peace, the old operating system of the flesh is constantly pulling us toward anxiety. Where the spirit is moving us toward freedom, the flesh constantly pulling us back into bondage. And so we're going through each of the nine fruit listed here in Galatians 5 that we just read, and our goal has been to define and unpack each of these fruit according to Scripture, and today we come to the fruit of the Spirit that is faithfulness, okay, faithfulness. Uh, As with all the fruit, we get the most clear picture of what faithfulness looks like from God Himself. There are more than 60 references in Scripture to the faithfulness of God, And you can make the argument that the entire story of Scripture could be summed up in one phrase, God is faithful. God is faithful. The entire universe hangs on the faithfulness of God. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and faithful in all He does. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. One more, Isaiah 25, 1 says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. And in each of these references to God's faithfulness, we get like a different facet of God's faithfulness. And it's a word that's really loaded with meaning. And if you explore the entire semantic range of the word faithfulness in Scripture, it really comes down to three things, okay? And I created an acronym for it that hopefully is going to be easy for you to remember. It's very Gen Z friendly. The acronym is LIT, okay? L-I-T. Okay, loyalty, integrity, and trustworthiness, okay? Loyalty, integrity, and trustworthiness, okay? So the next time someone says, yo, you're trying to get lit tonight, you can say, I'm trying to get loyalty, integrity, and faithfulness, okay? And trustworthiness, okay? Loyalty, integrity, and trustworthiness, okay? And I want to go through each of these components one at a time because I think each of them are going to give us a different window into God's faithfulness, okay? So first, loyalty, One of the central metaphors of God's faithfulness in Scripture is the metaphor of marriage. It's of a bridegroom fiercely committed to his bride no matter what the cost. 
Uh, we've talked about the book of Hosea here. And the entire story of Hosea is the story of a husband married to an adulterous wife, a prostitute who is running into the arms of other lovers over and over again. And this poor husband not only has to go to the darkest corners of society looking for her, but he actually has to buy his own wife back out of slavery in order to bring her back home. And this story is meant to depict the unfathomable loyalty of God who says, no matter how far you run from me, no matter how many times you cheat on me, I'm not going anywhere. No matter how disloyal you are, I'm staying put because I'm faithful. Now, this is probably a very foreign concept to many of us because I would say this kind of loyalty has been lost in our day and age. Everything about our culture is moving us away from loyalty. Um, in a national survey conducted in 2020, the survey revealed that only 56% of couples cited monogamy as an ideal relationship style. 56% of couples. Basically, ha almost half of all couples believe that, that being committed to one person for the long haul is something that's less than ideal. Marriage rates are at historic lows, and infidelity rates are at historic highs. Now, there are a lot of factors as to why that might be, uh, one, uh, one in which is that we live in the digital age, where we now have access to so many more people and choices. You know, before the internet, if you wanted to be disloyal to your spouse, you had a very limited number of options. Now you can slide into someone's DMs, you got cacao, Twitter, text, email, so many ways you can be disloyal to your spouse. Before the internet, if you wanted to date, limited number of options. Coworker, a neighbor, someone at church, that was it. Now those options, because of the prevalence of online dating, are unlimited. Back in the day, if you met someone half decent and normal, you were like, you know what, I can commit to this. Right? These days, literally, you could have Jesus Christ in the flesh sitting in front of you, and you're like, ah, but there might be someone better tomorrow. You know, I don't know if I can commit to this, right? We have so many mechanisms that make commitment something that's impossible. The Atlantic ran an article back in 2013 called A Million First Dates, and it talked about how much the dating landscape has changed, how dating used to be um, an opportunity to explore, to get to know someone, and to learn to commit to that person despite their flaws. And it talks about how now dating has become like the craziest college application process, where the goal is to get to know as much information about a person to see if they're worth committing to. Okay, very different landscapes we're living in. Now, this fear of commitment isn't just in the dating world, doesn't just apply to relationships, it's a trend we see in all things. Brand loyalty is far less important than it used to be, because if you can find the same thing now for a cheaper price, and they have, it's available on Amazon Prime, I'm going with that. Right? There used to be a time when athletes would be on one team for their entire careers. Now they'll give a team maybe like two years to put the right pieces around them, win a chip, if they don't do that, or if another team offers more money, they're gone. 
for jobs. I mean, we see this in the workplace. You know, it would not be surprising uh, even 10 years ago if you met someone who had been at the same company or organization for 20 years. Now, if you're at a company for longer than five years, it's like, wow, like what an accomplishment. Or it's like, what's wrong with you, right? Because honestly, loyalty is not a value anymore. If you can find a better alternative, if you can find a job that gives you more flexibility, lets you work from home, better benefits, why wouldn't you leave? It's a no-brainer. If you can find friends that are more important, that have more social clout, or your current friends aren't working out for you, why wouldn't you leave them? It's a no-brainer. If you can find a church that has better preaching, better music, better children's programs, why wouldn't you leave? The options are endless. It's a no-brainer. You see, this is the water we're swimming in where loyalty and commitment are no longer virtues. If you can find a better alternative or if a person or a thing is no longer meeting your needs, you're gone. And I think we apply this paradigm to our relationship with God as well. We're loyal as long as God is blessing us. We're loyal as long as God is giving us the things we want, helping us get to where we need to go. But the moment things get hard, the moment we have nothing to show for, for what we're putting in, the moment things get busy, the moment there are more important priorities on the table, we have no problem putting God on the back burner. It's like, I'll see you again when I need you for something. I'll see you again when I, when, when I have a huge prayer request and I should probably go out to church. But you see, God's loyalty doesn't work like that. His loyalty doesn't waver even on our worst days. He loves us even when we offer no benefit to him. He stays even when we don't uphold our end of the bargain. He walks with us even as we walk away from him because he's faithful. He's loyal. So first is loyalty. The second component of God's faithfulness is his integrity. The word integrity is defined as being whole and undivided, being the same person in every circumstance. In Psalm 86, King David says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. David connects faithfulness with a heart that's undivided, with a heart that doesn't change. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change depending on who he's with. He doesn't say one thing but mean another. He isn't moody. He isn't a compassionate father one day and a horrible tyrant the other day. He's consistent. Everything he is, he's always that. He's always loving. He's always gracious. He's always slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's always good because he's not divided. You know, many of us had parents where we didn't know what version of the parent we were going to get on a given day, right? You know, they walked into the home and we became masters of reading the room and reading the situation. And it's like, All right, she looks a little stressed right now. Probably don't ask about that birthday party, right? You know, it's like, are we going to get the, are we going to get the nice mom or are we getting Maleficent today? You know, right? Like, who are we getting? You know, I don't know. And we just became really good at that because people change. Depending on what our day has been like, depending on how our day at work was like, we change because we're divided. We're not always the same person at church as we are at work. We're not always the same person at home as we are at work. 
We're not always the same person with one group of friends as we are with another group. It's always really funny when you meet someone and that person's so nice and you go up to their spouse and like, is, man, are they this nice at home? And their spouse is like, I have no idea who you're talking about. Like, who? You know, we have a lot of pastor's kids in our community, okay? And, you know, I'm always, I'm all, I always find the PKs and I'm always picking their brain and I'm asking them questions about their childhood because I don't want to jack up my kids, okay? And I'm asking them questions and the thing I hear over and over again, the one consistent theme I hear all the time is that the person the church got was not the person we got. The pastor I saw loving and being so present for his congregation was not the father we got. You know, especially in a city like Los Angeles, where there is so much emphasis on maintaining appearances, putting forth a certain image of yourself, being someone in different circumstances, it's very challenging to live a life of integrity. I think technology only helps us further hide our, our true selves. You know, you ever see a video of someone on TikTok or interact with someone online, you meet them in person, they're completely different from their online persona. You know, and sometimes that, that difference is intentional, sometimes it's subconscious, but the bottom line is that we live in a culture that makes it very easy to be divided, to compartmentalize different parts of our lives for different people and different contexts. This is why we're so disappointed when our celebrity heroes don't turn out to be the people we thought they were. Wait, but he was this wholesome family man on the screen not realizing he had this dark side that nobody knew about. The past couple of years have been extremely difficult for me as a pastor, as I've seen like pastor after pastor after pastor, church leader that I've respected fall from grace. Some scandal gets um, uncovered where I'm like, like how did this person who taught me so much about the Bible, who taught me what it looks like to love Jesus, how did he, have, he or she have this like, other life that nobody knew about? How did this person wear a mask and fool the entire world? Because we're divided. And because we live in a world surrounded by divided people, because you and I are also divided people, we so often project that image onto God. We assume God is divided. We assume God also changes. We assume he isn't the same yesterday, today, and forever. We assume maybe God has bad days too. Maybe he has a dark side. Maybe God isn't always good. We're like, yeah, we admit God was good when he healed me five years ago. God was good when he got me my job three years ago. But how do I know he's good today? What if he's not that same God today? What if he's not in the mood to bless me today and do what he did again today? But you see, God doesn't operate the way we do. Who God says he is, he always is. In every season, in every circumstance, he's unchanging because he's undivided. He's always good. Okay, so faithfulness is loyalty, it's integrity. And the third component of God's faithfulness is his trustworthiness, okay? Whenever the faithfulness of God is spoken about in his word, it's always uh, in the context of God's promises. Every promise God makes, he keeps. You know, here in L.A., uh, people make and break promises all the time. It's like 
yo, we're getting coffee next week. You sure? For sure. Next week rolls around. It's like, ah, what was your, what was your name again? Right? Like, wait, like getting coffee is just a thing we say. Right? I think everyone in this city has a story about someone who promised them something only to turn around and break that promise. When God promises something, he always delivers. Now, you might be saying, well, I don't know about that. I don't know if God always keeps his promises because my life is pretty difficult. Well, God never promises you will have an easy life. In fact, he promises the exact opposite. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise. But he also says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. There is not one promise God has made that he has not kept. And you can take that to the bank. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to strengthen us, to provide and protect us. He prom promises to always be with us. God may not always keep every promise the way we want him to, but he always keeps his promises. You know, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he didn't look like the fulfillment of God's promises. In Isaiah 9, we read that a child unto us a child is born, he will be called a prince of peace who would put the government on his shoulders. So, I mean, if you were a Jewish person and you had read that prophecy your entire life, you thought when the Messiah would come that he would bring out his sword and overthrow the government because that's how you thought he was going to put, his gov put the government on his shoulders. But he didn't lead with force. When Jesus came, he led with weakness. He didn't destroy his enemies. When Jesus came, he died for his enemies. The fulfillment of God's promise didn't look the way people expected or wanted it to, and that's why everyone abandoned him. That's why nobody was there with Jesus at the cross, because they said, this, is not, this can't be the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet Jesus says it himself, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. You see, the world promises us acceptance and security and stability, all these things that are good longings. The world promises to give it to us in a very specific way. Jesus says, I'll give you these things, just not in the way you think I'm going to give them to you. The world promises to give us these things through wealth, through fame, through status, through people. All these things that are constantly breaking their promises. You think more money will truly give us more stability? Maybe for a little bit, just until the next economic recession. And then once, if you do get money, then you got to figure out how you're going to keep the money. Then you got to figure out what to do with all the people who want a piece of that money. The very anxious life. God doesn't give as the world gives, but he says, if you trust me, I will give you everything you need because that's what I promised. Perfect loyalty, perfect integrity, perfect trustworthiness. And in Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God's faithfulness. We see God's unswerving loyalty, one who lays down his life for his bride. We see in Jesus God's integrity, a picture of a God who's undivided and unchanging. You see, sin posed a problem for us. Because it was like, oh no, God might have to divide his character here. On one hand, it posed a problem for his mercy because he's like, I'm a just God and wrongdoing has to be punished. Evil has to be punished. The bad guys have to be punished. But on the other hand, 
If he's completely just, how is he merciful? It would divide his character. To have one without the other would make God divided. And so what does he do? He hangs on a cross, the place where God's mercy and justice meet. He says, I am a merciful God, and I love them too much to let them perish. But I'm also a just God. I can't just turn a blind eye to evil. So someone has to absorb this debt and let it be me. Perfect integrity. And finally, we see in Jesus God's absolute trustworthiness. You know, I titled this sermon, uh, Faithfulness, Freedom from Unbelief. Because I think a lot of times what keeps us from, tr from being faithful to God, what keeps us uh, from trusting Him, especially in times of trial and suffering, is often a lack of trust that He will be faithful to us. It's a lack of trust that God is indeed working for our good, a lack of trust that he cares for my needs. But let me ask you a question. What makes someone trustworthy? If I'm a bank and I'm reviewing your loan application, what makes you trustworthy to receive that loan? I have to look at your track record. I have to see, one, if you are capable of paying back that loan, and two, I have to see if you've proven yourself capable of paying back that loan. Everything else in the world that we put our trust in has a pretty bad track record, doesn't it? How many wealthy, famous, powerful people have to tell you how depressed they are for us to realize that we can't place our trust in what the world has to offer us? Why would we not place our trust in the one who created the universe, who has proven himself over and over and over again, in the one who has a perfect track record, in the one who gave his own life so that he could make good on his promises? One of my favorite lines from a hymn we sing regularly at our church, Tis So Sweet, is in the chorus, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, owe for grace to trust him more. Well, this begs the question, if this is the picture of perfect faithfulness, perfect loyalty, perfect integrity, perfect trustworthiness, it's easy to listen to this and be like, what hope do you and I have to be faithful people? It's like, I feel like I'm barely like a C plus as a dad and as a husband. I'm just scraping by. It's like I'm, I'm dropping the ball all over the place. My life is in shambles. I'm reneging on all my commitments. I'm pretty subpar at everything. I'm failing as a leader and a friend. No matter how hard I try, it never feel like, feels like I'm meeting the mark. I'm disloyal. I am a different person in different situations. I'm not always trustworthy. I don't always keep my promises. I don't always keep my commitments. What do I do? Not realizing that unknowingly we have equated faithfulness with willpower. If I just try harder to just be a more loyal person, if I just try harder, then maybe I can produce more faithfulness in my life. But what if faithfulness isn't about us? What if it's not about our loyalty, but about God's? What if it's not about our integrity, but about God's? What if it's not about our trustworthiness, but about God's? 
1 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Biblical faithfulness is not about holding fast to God. It's about entrusting our lives to the one who holds fast to us. There's a difference. Let me say that again. Biblical faithfulness is not about holding fast to God. It's about entrusting our lives to the one who holds fast to us, the one who will never let us go no matter how unfaithful we are. I want you to take a moment and think about all the little things that had to happen for you to be where you are today, for you to be sitting in the seat you're sitting in today. All the people who had to come into your life all the small conversations you had to have, the job or the school or the industry or the opportunity that brought you to this city, the mentors and friends who believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself, who poured into you and invested into your life. When I think about everything that had to happen for me to be standing here preaching God's word to you, I can tell you one thing is for sure. It's not because I was faithful. It's because God was. It's because God was loyal. It's because he didn't change. It's because he made a promise and he kept it. We are all living, breathing testimonies of God's faithfulness. You know, part of the beauty of baptism, and I'm so thankful that Baptism Sunday just happened to land today, is that it's the acknowledgement of every parent who had their child baptized that at the end of the day, it's not going to be like their amazing parenting and it's not going to be their amazing Sunday school teachers or an amazing church that's going to bring these children to faith. Ultimately, it's going to be the faithfulness of God. Parents will fall short. This church will fall short. Human beings will fall short, but the faithfulness of God will never fail. And the paradox of the Christian life is that the more we understand and recognize how unfaithful we are, the more faithful we actually can become. One of the reasons we do a confession of sin in our service every week is because we have to understand that faithfulness is not achieved through willpower. We have to take these moments to realize that we are unfaithful, that we are disloyal, that we wear a mask all the time, that we don't keep our promises, but in doing that, it forces us to fling ourselves unto the grace of God, fling ourselves on Christ who puts his faithfulness on us, who then allows us to become people of loyalty, integrity, and trustworthiness. What a witness that would be in a world full of flaky, fake, non-committal, disloyal people to be a community marked by radical faithfulness, to be a people who keep their promises, to be a people who let their yeses be yeses and their noes be noes, to be a people who aren't always pressing the eject button the moment a relationship or a person gets hard. Do you know how powerful it is to just stay, to just stay put? That is one of the most powerful witnesses to the faithfulness of God. There are few things more transformative than a person who says, I'm in this for the long haul. The person who chooses to be steadily faithful even when they don't see fruit. 
What a witness it would be for us in this time when people are flip-flopping sides every day, when they're shifting allegiances, to be a people unwilling to compromise their commitment to Jesus and the gospel. Again, not by our own strength, but through the strength of the one who was and is and will always be faithful to us. Let's pray. Lord, we admit and we confess that we all suffer from spiritual amnesia where we forget your faithfulness in our lives. Often we come and, you know, we, we forget all the things that you've put into place, all the small ways that you've provided for us, all the people that you've placed in our lives, and most importantly, we forget the cross. We forget that you gave your life, that you sealed every promise that you made in Scripture with your own blood. And God, so in this moment, I pray that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember how faithful and good you are. Help us to remember that you're a good father who doesn't change. Help us to remember that you're always working for our good and your glory. Help us to remember that you are sovereign. Help us to remember that even when we don't feel it, even when we don't see fruit, even when things are difficult, that you're moving, you're working, you're producing in us faithfulness that we are called uh, to possess. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that our faith isn't reliant upon us, but we thank you that it's a gift of your grace. Help us to receive that gift. Help us to embrace it and help us to throw ourselves onto your mercy. We thank you for this word. God, would you plant it deep within our hearts to be reminded that you are faithful. You are true to your promises. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.